Thank you, Williams family. Although you probably couldn't have chosen a, a song more juxtaposed to what we're going to be talking about this morning uh, as we look at the story of Job, um, but it was, it was a blessing to us to hear that, and yes, we are indeed so blessed. Uh, and additionally, I don't know if you noticed this, Pastor, uh, but you were almost struck dead by God. You, you upset the cart, and it almost fell. Yeah, you were, you were almost Uzzah. You had, you had to watch out. So, yeah, it's right. So today we are going to be in the book of Job, uh, and we are going to be jumping around the book of Job. So if there are any kids here, um, how many of you do Bible drills at any point? How many of the kids here have ever done a Bible drill? Do they still do those? They did it when I was a kid. You see, you hear a passage, you have to find it so quickly. Uh, we're going to be doing some Bible drills today because we're going to be jumping all around the book of Job. Uh, the good news is it's only in the book of Job that we're going to be jumping around. So I have narrowed it down for you. But we will be uh, moving rather quickly through multiple passages uh, as we look at the book of Job. Now, when it comes to the book of Job, we often, maybe I shouldn't say often, the book of Job can be treated like it's a seven-chapter book. You have chapters one and two where God and Satan have their conversation and Job is involved in that, and Job's whole life gets ruined. And then we tend to jump to Job 38 all the way to 42, because Job 38 is where God speaks. And God has all those rhetorical questions for Job. He displays his power, and then Job is restored, and we close the book, and we move on to the next book, and we feel like we got the gist of it. Uh, and there's a tendency to skip Job 3 to 37, in fact, in preparing this message, I don't think I've ever heard a message on any of the chapters between Job 3 and Job 37. I've heard references to verses in other messages, uh, but Job 3 to 37 is 80% of the book, and it tends to get skipped over. And my plan is to weave through a portion of the book of Job and to look at the progression of Job's faith. Now, to just give you some background, Job is introduced in Job 1 as blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. In fact, it's said twice, and God affirms it in the heavenly courts to Satan. And then Satan brings up a charge. He brings up an accusation, and it is one of the most important verses in the book. Satan makes the case, does Job serve God for nothing? So God speaks to Satan, and he says, Have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. To which Satan replies, Does Job serve God for nothing? And there is a lot in that question. First and foremost in that question is the implication that God is only worth serving if he does good things for you. I mean, after all, Job doesn't serve God for nothing. That's the charge. Job serves God because God blesses Job. And so in this implied in this accusation is that God is only worth serving and worshiping and following because he gives blessings. The second implication is that Job isn't righteous because if he's only serving God for what he can get out of the relationship, Job is selfish. In, in fact, if all followers of God are only serving God for what they can get out of it, every single human being's righteousness is just selfishness. And if Job isn't righteous, if he's actually just a selfish sinner, then God's estimation of Job is wrong, 
and then God's wrong. And this is the charge. This is the argument that is made throughout the book of Job. And Job becomes the testing ground for this because this charge must be proven wrong. Even if God were to obliterate Satan in chapters 1 and 2, this charge would still stand and it would still have to be proven wrong. And so Job becomes a test. And God allows his entire life to be ruined. He loses all of his wealth and all of his children in one day. And we read that and we keep reading and I don't want us to skip over that for a second. You lose everything that you have in one day. Your house, your cars, all of your wealth, all of your savings account, everything that you had to live on, everything that you could hope to give to your children, they're all gone. And your children are gone too. Every single one of them taken on the same day. And this is just the first round of trial, of testing. Because what we see with Job is that Job responds to all of this loss with the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is Job 1.21. And then Satan comes into the heavenly courts again. And God points out, have you considered my servant Job? You tested him, he's maintained his integrity, to which Satan then buffs his accusation, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has if he's going to save his life. And then God allows Satan to afflict Job with disease. He can't kill him, but he's going to inflict him with disease. And still, even despite Job's wife's encouragement uh, in Job 2.9 to curse God and die, Job holds fast to his integrity. Job 2 verse 10, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then we jump to chapter 38 because Job has made this, frankly, amazing proclamation of faith. We cheer him on. We go right answer, Job. That was great. And then we see God talk and then we see God restore him. And we have in our brains that Job didn't suffer that long. But there's still verse, or chapters 3 to 37. There's still 80% of the book. And at the end of Job 2, we're introduced to Job's three friends, verses 11 to 13. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the portion of Job that I'm going to look at involves these three in Job. Because they're going to have three rounds of conversation with Job. And they're going to have this conversation in the order that they're introduced. So there's three cycles of conversation. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. Three times, except in the third time, Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad starts to speak, and I'm pretty sure Job just cuts him off. And Zophar doesn't open his mouth the third time. And what I want us to look at is... The position of Job's friends versus the position that Job takes. And what I want us to see is that God allows the righteous to suffer for reasons not always evident. But the one who suffers still has hope in God through their suffering. Oftentimes the question associated with the book of Job is why do the righteous suffer? And that's close to the right question to be asking. Job actually answers that question. God allows the righteous to suffer. That's why the righteous suffer. 
The, the better question to ask in the book of Job is, why does God allow the righteous to suffer? And that kind of gets answered by the end of the book of Job. But we're going to start with Job's friends. So turn with me to Job 3, and we're going to start in verses 1 to 4, and then we're going to jump through a couple other verses in Job 3 before moving on. So Job 3, verses 1 to 4. By the way, this is the first thing that Job says after his proclamation of faith in Job 2, verse 10. It is going to sound like a very different person. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said, A boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor let light shine on it. If you jump down to verse 11, Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Jump to verses 20 to 22. Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave. The reason we skip this section of Job is because it's heartbreaking. Uh, it, is, it is incredibly sad, and it asks a lot of questions that make us very uncomfortable. But this is the cry of someone who is in deep anguish and grief. As we will learn over the course of Job, because of his disease, he can't eat, he can't sleep, He's in terror, he's in anguish, he's terribly thin, he's covered in boils, his skin has worms, it cracks, it runs, he has no rest, he has no peace, he has no comfort. This is the test, using Job as the test subject to see if Job does serve God for nothing. And I want you to understand, this isn't something that takes place over a day. Job's friends have to come get him. They have to, they have to meet with him. Which means news of Job has to travel. His friends have to hear about it. Then they all have to agree to meet together. And then they all have to travel to Job. And while they're traveling, they're probably bringing large groups of people to keep them sustained during this trip. This is months of suffering for Job, most likely. Months and months of this constant suffering. And you can begin to understand why he opens up chapter 3 this way. But from here... Job and his friends begin to offer their counsel. Eliphaz will speak, then Bildad, then Zophar, and Job will respond to each of them. And all of them are going to argue from earthly wisdom. Eliphaz is going to argue from divine revelation. He's going to claim that he received a vision uh, from, of some supernatural being that gave him wisdom. Bildad is going to make uh, the argument from human experience. Look back on our fathers and see what they have discovered. And Zophar is going to make the argument from his knowledge of God, which he assumes that Job just simply doesn't have. Now, all three friends start from the same premise, that God is just and he does not punish the innocent. Turn with me to Job 4, verses 7 to 8. This is Eliphaz speaking. This is, this is the first time a friend speaks to Job after a week of silence. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Look at verse 17. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Jump with me to Job 8, verses 3 and 4. This is Bildad speaking now. Job 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice? 
Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Which, as an aside, that is not what you should say to someone who is mourning the loss of their children. Job, your children died because they deserved it. That's what his friend just said to him. Look at verse 20. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. Jump with me to Job 11, verse 11. Make a wish. This is now Zophar speaking. For he, speaking of God, knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. The argument that Job's friends are going to make is that God is just, and therefore, the only people who suffer are those who deserve it, are those who have committed some kind of sin. And so, because that's their argument, they are going to start with Job's circumstances, and they are going to work back. Job, you are suffering. Suffering is punishment. Therefore, you have done something wrong because God is just, and he does not punish the innocent. They are going to view Job's current situation as an indication of his righteousness. Job, you are suffering, therefore you are wicked, because God is just. In fact, they view all suffering as punishment, because if someone is following the Lord and is righteous, God will not bring suffering to them, because suffering is bad and God is just. This is the very simple logic that they function on. It's bad theology, by the way. All three of his friends are going to be rebuked by God by the end of the book for their bad theology. But they all start from the same premise, and then they all work to the same conclusion. And they offer the same advice. Repent. Repent, Job, and be restored. Turn back with me to Job 5, verse 8. This is, again, Eliphaz speaking. Job chapter 5, verse 8. But as for me, if I was in your position, Job, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God. Turn to Job 8, verses 5 and 6. This is Bildad speaking. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself from you and restore your righteous estate. Turn with me to Job 11, 13 to 15. This is Zophar speaking. If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear. The friend's advice is very simple. Job... You've obviously sinned horrendously. But good news, God forgives sin. So repent and be restored. Repent and your life will be all that much better. After all, that's the only reason for righteousness, right? Is to be blessed. I mean, really, does Job serve God for nothing? This is the argument Satan makes. This is the argument his friends push. Job, you're a sinner, but if you just repent, you will get everything back. Not your relationship with God will be made right, but you will have all of your stuff restored. You will get to enjoy all the blessings that you once did. 
The friends make character judgments on Job based on the circumstances he is in. And because of the circumstances he is in, there is only one verdict for Job. Sinner. Wicked. Evil. He has to have committed some kind of sin because God is just and he does not send suffering to the righteous. At least that's how they see it. And so if you're suffering, therefore you've sinned and it's your fault and you need to repent. Now the irony of the friend's assessment in the book of Job is that the book of Job has already made character assessment of Job. Back in Job chapter 1, in the introduction, the book is not afraid to tell you that Job is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. The book at the start takes the option that Job is a sinner and somehow deserves what he's going through for some specific sin out the window because he is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. But his friends don't know that, and they're just going off of the evidence they have. In fact, Job is just going off of the evidence that he has because they don't know about that conversation. They just see what Job's circumstances are, and to them that means Job is wicked, and he needs to repent. But Job can't repent. And this is the central problem between Job and his friends. Job can't repent of a sin he did not commit. If Job repents of a sin he did not commit, and God restores him, God is punishing an innocent man, and therefore God is not just. Additionally, if Job repents of a sin he did not commit just to be restored, Job is not righteous. He's selfish. And he just wants the pain to stop. And this was very common for the world in which Job lived. That if you did something wrong, or if life was going poorly, you offended some God somewhere, so just start apologizing until all of your life gets better. So if Job repents, God is not just. And if Job repents, he's selfish and not righteous. He can't repent. He can't repent. He hasn't committed a sin that's worthy of this suffering. And he will defend that with every breath he takes, that he is innocent of the wrongdoing his friends are accusing him of. And this angers his friends immensely because Job's just not getting it. What we will see as, the, as these conversations progress, Job's friends and comforters become another source of suffering for him. They will start to paint a picture of a wicked man. Here's what their picture looks like, and let me know if it sounds familiar to anyone in the book of Job. Eliphaz, the wicked man writhes in pain, goes hungry, lives in fear, distress, and anguish, loses his wealth, and is made barren. That's Job 15. Bildad, the wicked man is terrified, weak, diseased, torn from his tent, has no offspring. That's Job 18. Zophar, the wicked man is cut down in his youth. He loses his riches. He can't enjoy what he has. He has everyone against him. He lives in terror and darkness. He has no survivor. His possessions flow away. That's Job 20. All three of Job's friends look to Job as the poster child of a wicked person. Job, your circumstances fit the bill. You're the poster child for someone who is evil. And I know this because I can see your circumstances. Because God is just, and he does not send suffering to righteous people. This is their bad theology. 
In fact, by the, the third cycle of conversation, uh, Eliphaz just begins accusing Job of, of crimes. Turn with me to Job 22, verses 5 to 11. What's ironic about this section we're about to read is that Eliphaz, when he starts, is actually the nicest one to Job. And he actually commends Job for righteousness in the areas that he is now going to accuse them of. Verse 5, Job 21. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness that you cannot see, and abundance of waters covers you. His friends know Job had to have done something wrong. So now they're just shooting in the dark. They're just throwing things out, hoping that they stick. Because this is why the suffering has come, obviously. Because Job is somehow wicked. They're wrong. But they will not be moved from this position despite Job's pleading. His friends are entrenched in their position. Their understanding of God and how he works is flawed. And don't worry, by the end of the book, they're rebuked for it by God himself. But they can't give up their position. Because if they do then what happened to Job could happen to them. If Job is blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil, and that is God's assessment of him, there is nothing to protect you from what happened to Job. Righteousness gives you no shield. And so they cannot be moved from this position because if they admit that Job is innocent and he's suffering like this, it can happen to them too. I mean, after all, Job's friends don't serve God for nothing. They need the protection that righteousness offers so that they don't suffer. That's why they follow God. But that's not why Job follows God. And again, this goes all the way back to the charge that Satan makes in Job chapter 1. And so Job's friends cannot change their position because that opens up a world of hurt that they are not ready for. They do not want to undergo the suffering that Job did. So it must be that Job is unrighteous and wicked. Because if Job is righteous and blameless and fears God and this happens to him, it can happen to me. And it can happen to you. And so now we're going to look at Job's position. Job's friend's position does not change, but Job's position does. As we saw in Job chapter 3, Job opened, lamenting the day of his birth, wishing that he had never been born. He will make repeated pleas with God to just leave him alone so that he can die and rest. Job will make the question God as to why Job didn't just go from womb to tomb if this is his lot in life. These are really hard questions from a grieving soul. Now, even though Job is opposed to his friends, he does agree with his friends on a number of points. He does agree that God is just, and he does agree that God is powerful, but this only makes things worse for Job. Turn with me to Job 13, verse 15. And this is a, a more common, more familiar verse from the book of Job. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. 
Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Job realizes that he has to present his case to a judge who is, in his view, already unjustly punishing him. But this is the only judge that he can go to. Job will also agree with his friends that no man is sinless. And I want you to understand this. When Job is defending his innocence, he is not making a claim that he's perfect, that he's never sinned. In fact, one of the questions he will ask God is, are you punishing me because of sins I committed in the past? When Job is defending his innocence, what he's saying is, I have not committed sins that my friends say that I've committed, and I've definitely not committed a sin that is worthy of this level of punishment. I am innocent of those charges. And the book of Job really does take a courtroom language to it, where Job is desperately trying to prove his innocence and present his case. Here's Bible drill right here. All right, we're going to start in Job 6, verse 10, and we are going to jump around. But all of this is Job defending his innocence. Job chapter 6, verse 10. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Turn to Job 9, verse 15. Job 9, verse 15. For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. Look at verses 20 and 21. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. Chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. Are your days as the days of a mortal or your years as man's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Job 12, verse 4. This is part of a rebuke that Job has for his friends, for their comfort. I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a joke. And then jump to chapter 23, verses 10 to 12. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job will not budge on this. He is innocent of the crimes that his friends are charging him of. He is innocent of the level of wickedness that would deserve this level of punishment. And so Job desperately seeks to present his case in the divine courtroom because he knows God is just. Something that weaves through the book of Job is that Job is going to be arguing back to God his attributes. He knows God is just, and yet it seems that God is acting unjust. So something's up. And so Job is going to want to speak to God and present his case for his innocence because he knows God is just. Turn with me to Job 13, 20 to 22. Only two things do not do to me, then I will not hide from your face. 
Remove your hand from me, and let not the dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, then reply to me. Jump to Job 23 again, verses 3 to 9. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No. Surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. One of the ironies of the book of Job is that Job feels like God's presence is crushing him, and yet he can't find, he can't find God. He can't find God to present his case. But even though Job wants to present his case, he also agrees that no man is perfect. So even if he could enter into the divine courtroom and present his case, how could Job answer God? Because Job is a sinner. Turn with me to Job chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? Jump to verses 14 to 16. How then can I answer him? And choose my words before him. For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Job has no idea why God is allowing this suffering in his life. But he does know that God is just. And so Job's desire is to present his case before God. And yet, he realizes that he can't do it on his own. He needs an umpire. He needs an arbiter. Staying in Job chapter 9, look at verses 32 and 33. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. The job of an umpire is to make a call on the rules between two opposing parties. And so what Job is wishing for is for someone to take team Job and team God and bring them both together and then someone to make a rule call. Because to Job, God isn't playing by the rules. God is just and what Job is experiencing doesn't seem to indicate that. So something's up. I need an umpire to deliberate between me and God because God's cheating. What Job comes to realize though is that God being all powerful is the umpire. But this does not cause Job despair. This actually begins a small growth of hope. Turn with me to Job 16, verse 19. And these passages that we are going to read are probably the most familiar to us from the book of Job. 16, verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. So Job understands that God is the judge who is, from Job's perspective, 
unjustly punishing him. He also understands that God is the umpire who is going to make the rule call. And because God is just, he's going to make the right rule call. He also understands that God is the witness to Job's innocence. And that because the witness is just, he is going to give the right testimony. Job's hope begins to grow as he wrestles with the justice of God, which is what the whole book of Job does, by the way. It wrestles with theodicy, the justice of God. Job's faith in God, or I'm sorry, Job's faith in God's justice grows over the conversations. He is the judge, he is the umpire, he is the witness, and he is the redeemer. Turn me to Job 19, 23 to 27. We read this for our congregational reading. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. We as Christians in the 21st century, when we read this passage, we see it dripping with Jesus Christ. And it is. Uh, when Job said this, he did not have Jesus Christ in mind, but he did not realize all that was involved in this phrase. Job, when he is asking for a redeemer, is not asking for someone to forgive him from sin. Jesus Christ is our redeemer. Jesus Christ does forgive sin. That is how you come to salvation. But Job is making a case that he's innocent. Job is not asking for forgiveness from sin. Job is asking for someone who will vindicate him in court. The word that he uses here for redeemer is the same word that's used of a kinsman redeemer, a family member who one of their responsibilities to you, because they are a family member, is when accusations are made against you to testify for you in court, to hold up your name in court, to vindicate you. So you can read it more as, I know that my vindicator lives. Someone who will prove Job's innocence against his friend's accusations and against what he thinks God thinks of him. Job anticipates this vindication against these accusations will come once he's died. Job makes many comments through his discourses that he's pretty sure this disease is going to kill him pretty soon. He does not expect to be vindicated in this life. But he knows that whenever it comes, he will be vindicated because God is just. And so he wants his words engraved. He wants his words written in a book, which is another irony of the book of Job. Job got exactly what he wanted because we're talking about him almost 4,000 years after he lived. His words are recorded in a book. But he wants them to stand forever as a testimony to his innocence so that when his Redeemer does at the last take his stand on the earth, Job will be proven of any kind of wickedness that his friends accuse him of or any kind of wickedness that God seems to be punishing him for. Job knows God is his vindicator who will vindicate him. Job's innocence will be proven for all time by God, even if it's not in this life. Job knows that even if he dies and he does not get to see his vindication in this life, the Lord will show him his vindication. 
And this is very much a, a thought pregnant with the ideas of afterlife. Job is convinced that he will get to see both his vindication and his vindicator. And in his immense suffering, this is his greatest hope. God allows the righteous to suffer for reasons not always evident, but the one who suffers still has hope in God through his suffering. Job's friends told, God, or told Job to repent so he could have all his stuff back. After all, what's righteousness good for if it's not getting me things? And the book of Job definitely challenges you to think about why you serve God. Because Job's friends do it so they can get a bunch of stuff. But that's not why Job does it. Job wants beyond all else to see the God that he knows is just meet out justice. Decree justice. To take his stand on the earth. Job wasn't righteous for what he got out of it. He was righteous because he loved God. And I don't want to give you the impression that Job was a choir boy, that his words were completely clean in his discourses. Job says a lot of things that would make you very uncomfortable. He accuses God of being wrong. He accuses God of being unjust. He accuses God of being cruel. Job does not come out of this perfectly clean. But in his grief and in his sorrow, and from his understanding of things, he has no other option. And so he'll make these accusations. But Job also knows that God is just. And that is his hope. And so whenever it comes time for justice to be meted out in Job's life, he knows he will be vindicated. By the way, Job never gets an answer as to why he went through all of this. We as the audience read Job 1 and 2. We know why Job goes through all of this. And we would be very, very quick to say, Job... It was all Satan. And that's true to a point. But the book of Job makes it very clear. God allowed it. Job, his friends, and the book of Job all lay Job's suffering at God's feet, not at Satan's feet. None of his friends bring up Satan. Job does not bring up Satan. In fact, after, after chapters 1 and 2, Satan doesn't get brought up again. The courtroom challenge from Job is against God. It is not against Satan. Because God's justice is what this book is about. And yet, Job, even though he is vindicated, even though he is restored, he never gets to hear about that conversation. Oh, Job, I allowed this to happen because Satan made a charge and you were the, the test subject. Sorry about that. Job lives over 100 years. He sees the fourth generation of his children he never gets to know why God did all of this. God does not explain it to him. In fact, when God speaks to him in Job 38 to 40, God makes it two things very clear. I am all-powerful and I am just. The question of Job is why does God allow the righteous to suffer? And the answer of Job is God is almighty, God is just. And that's enough. Job doesn't get his question answered. And yet, through all of Job's terrible suffering, Job had one small shred of hope. And it is the same hope that you have when you go through suffering. His Redeemer lives. 
as long as he is faithful to the Lord, even amid suffering, he knows that at the end he will be vindicated. Job thought this was going to happen after his life. We know, reading the end of Job, that it happens during his life. But this was Job's hope. This was the only hope that Job had, by the way. This was the only comfort Job has in the entire book, is that his Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, and I will be vindicated for my righteousness. Job did not serve God for what he got out of it. He served God because God is worthy of service. And this goes all the way back to Job 1 with the accusation. God is worthy of your whole life, not because of all the great things he gives you, but simply because he is God. And Job's hope is that he is God and he is just, even in suffering. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the book of Job. I thank you for the hard questions it asks. I, ask you for, I thank you for the uncomfortable topics it, it talks about. And I thank you that through it, you are not a God who is scared of these questions. But you are a God who answers. And that you are a God who is all-powerful and who is just. And so I pray that we do not think our suffering is because of something we've done wrong. Because it not, not always is it. But I pray that through the suffering, we would be following you, maintaining our righteousness, maintaining our faithfulness to you, because you are God and you are worthy of our whole life. May our devotion to you, may our love for you be born out of that, that you are God and that you live. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.